It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome in one and all. It is Tuesday, January 25th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show live from New York City. I'm Guy Benson, your host, political editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor. In fact, I will be on Gutfeld, exclamation point, on Fox News Channel. That's tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, with the whole crew there looking forward to it. Hope to see you. You can watch live. You can set your DVRs up to you. That's 11 Eastern tonight, Gutfeld. Be there. That's part of the reason that that we're here in the Big Apple. I'll also be co-hosting Outnumbered tomorrow. So that should be fun. Our website here at the show, which airs, I should note, every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, is GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any of the program during those hours, 3 to 6 Eastern, you can go back and listen free of charge on demand on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Here's what we have for you on the radio side. A lot in store today, including Josh Krasauer coming up in the next hour. U.S. Senator Tom Tillis, Republican, North Carolina. He will be here. And then our favorite stupid SOB, Peter Ducey, White House correspondent here at Fox News. Uh, He'll be here in the final hour. I want to ask him about his conversation he had with President Biden after that outburst, that perhaps uh, cathartic moment for President Biden insulting our colleague, with some colorful language yesterday that of course got a lot of attention last evening. Ducey was on the news channel talking about it. I haven't heard him asked about what actually happened when Biden called him later. Was it an apology? What was, if he can't tell me specifics, what was the overall tone and tenor of that phone call from the president? We'll get to that with Peter Ducey coming up in our final hour here today. Fox news alert. As we begin, let's bring you stats. COVID cases, the official case count in the U.S., cumulatively 71.6 million, the real number far, far greater. The death toll, people who have died with or of COVID in the United States over these last two years, 867,868. The Dow is up 82 points right now, trading at 34,446, and we have just about 51 minutes to go in the trading day. Well, yesterday we started on COVID and today we are going to start again on COVID. We played you the sound bites of Bill Maher, Barry Weiss that got a lot of attention over the weekend. And then the backlash from the view from Jimmy Acosta at CNN, some tantrums that were half baked at best People angry that Barry Weiss, for example, would say that she's over COVID and a lot of these restrictions, especially against young people, are indefensible and ridiculous at this stage. Of course, she was right about that. But we still have far too many people in positions of power and influence 
who are a bunch of neurotics who want to impose their neuroses on the rest of society. And if you, and if you disagree, no matter how much data you present, no matter how much science and information you cite, they don't care. They're impervious to that. They are convinced that they are on the side of public health, that they are on the side of the children, that they, of course, are the ultimate lovers and fetishists of capital S science. And you're wrong. And you're just engaged in a giant game of child sacrifice, letting people die left and right just so you can be selfish. It's crazy. And part of the reason that we've talked so much about what's happening in Virginia and the fight right now between Governor Glenn Youngkin and a few of these school districts, in particularly Northern Virginia, the reason that we focus on that as much as we have is not just because I'm living in Virginia and I've been a Virginia resident and voter now for years, so it's close to home for me, so I'm paying more attention. I mean, that might be part of it, but to me, it's much bigger than that. In fact, it kind of reminds me of our many, many conversations about Florida and Ron DeSantis. I visit Florida from time to time. I've never lived there. I have no like special place in my heart for Florida. I just think that these are proxy battles over much bigger issues and are extremely important. And in Virginia, the reason I think it's so important, the reason that we're going to continue to drill down and follow what's happening as Yunkin tries to follow through on his campaign promise, he won, remember, he won, is because he is doing battle in a purple state with people who are not going to ever give up until they are actively beaten and broken. You must break the spirit of these people, the safetyists. Break them. I'm saying that rhetorically, of course. Beat them politically. Make it not realistic or tenable for them to continue to feel like they can play their political games and carry out their social experiments and fight their culture war with children as their pawns. They're not going to just give up. They are invested. They are dug in at this point. And therefore, they must be defeated. And that is what Yunkin is trying to do in Virginia. So the stakes are high. I will come back to Virginia in a second and some of the developments there. But I want to give you a few more examples of this type of mentality that has to be defeated. You can't just wish it away and say, well, we'll get there eventually. No, that that time has passed. This is why we've been so engaged on this. Southern California, Los Angeles, here's an example. And L.A. has been almost like ground zero for some of the craziest stuff on COVID and kids during this pandemic. Schools were closed for well over a year, an entire school year plus additional months. You had the school teachers union out in Los Angeles making all sorts of demands like we're not coming back until you defund the police and set up government health care. I mean, they tried that stuff. A lot of these teachers unions decided, I don't really want to do the work today or this week or this month or this year. And we have an opportunity for some leverage here. Let's see how far we can press to get a bunch of insane left wing stuff on the table 
in order to get the ransom that we want in order to just show back up at work in alignment with the data and the interests of the children. So that's something that they tried out in L.A. We also brought you that story of a school in L.A. allegedly, and this was not denied by the district, vaccinating kids without their parents' knowledge or consent. More on that here in a second. But here's what they're doing in Los Angeles. Starting this week, students must wear, quote, well-fitted non-cloth masks with a nose wire. So these are the medical N95 or KN95 masks. So they are actually going further on mask mandates. For the umpteenth time, I will say there is no good data that shows that masking kids has been a successful policy at mitigating spread of this virus in schools. And schools are some of the safest places you can be in all of society when it comes to the transmission of this virus. We have known this for a year and a half. The data has been there. There is reams of not just theoretical like you know, white papers, but real-world experience and outcomes that show this. No statistical difference between districts that have mask mandates and those that don't. Florida has had voluntary masking or no masking throughout their state for months and months and months, and they've been great in schools. But in some districts, like Alexandria, Virginia, And here in Los Angeles, they are going further. They are doubling, tripling down on mask mandates, saying the old masks aren't good enough. We now need these special masks. And you might say, well, that's because of science. And the science does show that those masks are more effective at stopping transmission. If they're worn properly, these are kids. They are extremely low risk. Masking kids needs to stop, period. But here's the tell on how it's not about science at all. These N95 and KN95 masks that are now required in Los Angeles must be worn by the students at all times, quote, including outdoors. We have also known for the better part of two years that the safest place you can be when it comes to COVID-19 spread is outside. And yet here we are. In the year of our Lord, 2022, approaching February, and you still have health experts and school officials saying that for the safety of children who are already at almost no risk from COVID, like severe cases are vanishingly rare. Deaths even more rare among kids. Your kid is much more likely to die in a car wreck or a drowning accident. Than of COVID. The risk is roughly equivalent among kids to the flu. And we don't shut down society and put kids in masks for the flu. We just don't. Because that would be crazy. That would be a terrible risk analysis manifesting itself in a terrible public policy. And yet here we are. And you have the science crowd, right? The people who worship the science in their own minds, but actually don't care about the actual science. They are forcing little kids to wear surgical masks, medical masks in schools and outside when there is literally zero, none, zero data to back that up. That's what they're doing in Los Angeles as of this week for the science. There's now a bill in Sacramento. Seems like almost all of our worst ideas start in California. 
There's a bill in California in the legislature that would allow schools to vaccinate children without the knowledge or consent of their parents, starting at the age of 12. So you send Tim off to middle school, and under this bill, the school can stick a needle in his arm and inject him with something without you even knowing. Progress is what they're going for out there in California. It's just, it's just almost beyond belief. This is why I'm so fired up saying that these people have to be beaten and broken, right? Their, their stranglehold in their own minds on our society and our society's kids, where they have absolute contempt for you and for your role as a parent and feel like they know better and they're going to do all this harmful stuff, that has to be shattered. It has to be pried away from them. Proactively, affirmatively taken away from them because they're not going to just give it up. I did thankfully see a thread from a viral immunologist, Dr. Scott Balstitis, who is finally admitting that student masking is not really helpful. He says, when an intervention's real-world benefits are too small to even measure, we should feel comfortable ending its use. Acknowledging that dropping masks is a big shift for many, we call for a change to mask optional everywhere no later than February 15th. Okay, yes, mask optional. That's a start. And that's all Yunkin's asking for in Virginia, mask optional. That's what these people are squealing about. A few more examples. In Buffalo, New York, a blue city in a blue state, the Philharmonic Orchestra has announced that they're going to require kids five and older to show proof of vaccination just to attend performances at the music hall. So if a parent wants to bring their kid who's seven to hear some classical music, you must vaccinate your kid in order to get that done. Even some of the biggest vaccine advocates out there, doctors, people who are quite cautious on COVID, almost all of them say that mandating vaccines for young kids is not the right way to go. This is a parent-to-parent, family-to-family decision based on their concerns and what their doctor advises. And there are upsides and there are downsides and there are trade-offs. It's not the same as elderly population or high-risk population. For kids, the vaccines are available but should not be mandated. That is what so many doctors have said. Even, again, some of the biggest, most vehement supporters of vaccination that we've spoken to on the air and elsewhere here. Don't make it required. And yet, just to participate in society, they are trying, through heavy-handed bureaucracy and government power grabs, to try to compel parents to make the decision to vaccinate their kids if they want to go to a concert in Buffalo, if they want to go to a football game or a basketball game or a hockey game in Philadelphia because they serve food at the indoor arena. So this is for basketball and hockey. They're going to ask kids all the way down to age five to be vaccinated to get in the building or a big nasal swab every time they want to come. That's like the price of admission, part of it. A vaccine for children, for a six-year-old who wants to go with his dad to the hockey game. They've done the same thing in Minneapolis for restaurants. This is absolutely crazy. And the way that you beat it back, the way that you defeat this, is by watching very closely what's happening in Virginia and rooting hard 
for Governor Yunkin to win. Because if he loses this fight, it's going to embolden these types of people everywhere. What's happening in Virginia? We have an update as soon as we come back. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. The Guy Benson Show. More next. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. So what is happening in Virginia, since I've talked about how important this battle is on school masking? Can Yunkin actually win against these folks? Well, the good news is, I have to say, the vast, vast, vast majority of school districts have complied. I bet you a lot of them were thrilled to comply. They've been waiting for this moment. They couldn't under the Democratic governor, Governor Blackface. Now you've got Yunkin in there. So almost every district has said, yes, mask optional, parents decision. Good. But there are holdout areas and blue areas. And these are people who are obsessed with culture war politics. It's not about the health of children. It really isn't. There are some people who are well-meaning who probably think it is, but this is about power and control with these people. And we got reports yesterday that there were kids coming into schools in some of these districts sent by their parents without masks. They were plucked out of class, sent to the gym or the auditorium to sit there and do virtual learning. They were allowed. They were not allowed to speak to each other, to talk to anyone, to go anywhere else in the building. They sat there and did so-called virtual learning, which is a disaster, in the auditorium all day, deprived of in-person learning because of this anti-science nonsense in their districts. In one example that came out of Northern Virginia... The system wasn't working, so the kids just sat there and didn't learn anything at all. That's a disgrace. The good news is the the thing that they're clinging to, this state law that passed last year, which says you have to follow the CDC guidance to the greatest extent possible, even though they're all ignoring CDC guidance on a bunch of stuff. They're picking and choosing what they want, but they're they're clinging to the mask thing, citing the CDC law That Virginia passed last year, as I mentioned yesterday, there's a Democrat, a Senate Democrat in Virginia who has said enough. There needs to be an off ramp and soon or I'm going to join the Republicans on this vote and repeal or clarify that law. And then child choice on masking for the parents will be the law in Virginia and not just the governor's order. More on this as soon as we come back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com. It's our online home. Podcast is free every day. I like to be transparent with you guys. So let me just tell you, the plan, the game plan here was for me to shift topics to crime. I still really want to talk about that because we're seeing spin from the White House, insane spin over at CNN, and horrible results. In fact, just heart wrenching news today a second nypd officer has died in that shooting up in harlem just a few days ago 
Two officers, two officers were shot, one died, and now the second has died, succumbing to his wounds. They are two of the five NYPD officers who have been shot already this year in the first 25 days of the year. And there are other examples across the country. I don't want to give that broad issue set short shrift. We are going to cover it on the show this week. What I don't want to do either is blow past some of the important stuff on COVID and mandates and schools and give that less time than it deserves. So I'm going to continue because I didn't finish in my first half hour. And this is sometimes the beauty of radio and talk radio. You make decisions on the fly. You have time. You have space. You have real estate, so to speak, to keep going. And not hold that thought, but finish that thought. So I'm going to finish the thought. And here's why, again, just in the spirit of transparency and openness with all of you, I cannot tell you how many notes I get from people on COVID and schools and all of this stuff more than any other issue than we talk about that we talk about here. That is number one, and it's not even close in recent months. I know, even if you don't have kids, I know that COVID and restrictions affect all of us. So mark my words, we will talk about crime. We will get to that in some depth. We will dismantle some of the dishonesty out there. But I'm going to continue, I guess because my name's on the show, I get to make these decisions. I'm going to continue and finish the thought on Virginia, and then I want to read to you at length from a really, really good, important, well-written piece by one of my best friends. That is right on point. So on Virginia, here's the last thing I'll say about this fight. That's not just brewing. It's it's fully broken out. Because, as I mentioned in the last segment, you have this one member of the Democrat Senate caucus. Because the Republicans control the governorship, the lieutenant governorship, the attorney general, thanks to that sweeping victory that they won last November. They won back the House of Delegates, the lower chamber. They are one vote shy, 21-19 in the Senate in Virginia. And now you have a moderate Democrat in Virginia saying, enough is enough. We cannot have permanent masking on kids. It is not acceptable. There needs to be, from these holdout school districts in very blue territory, there needs to be a clear off-ramp with a date soon. And if you're not going to do that, then I am going to vote with the Republicans to change the law and your fig leaf that you're using to defend your actions that you feel like is going to work in court as you battle with the governor, that's going to go away because they've been relying on this statute from last year that this guy was part of. He said, I will now help clarify or reverse the statute with the Republicans, assuming that no other Democrats join 2020 tie in the Virginia Senate. Guess who comes in? Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears to break the tie on behalf of parents and students in Virginia. So now the question becomes for these people who are obsessed with politics and for whom politics and ideological combat and culture war sort of dominates their thinking. And again, yes, I believe for a lot of the people at the tip of the spear in this fight, it is absolutely about that. It is No longer and has not been for some time about health or safety, especially about kids. And if it is, they are ignoring almost all of the data 
that would allow them to continue that facade. So if it looks like there's going to be a vote in Virginia where Yunkin's already come down with his executive order and then the law that they're citing where they oh, we have to follow the CDC based on this law, even though we're ignoring the CDC. Like if they were following CDC guidance to the letter, they would be canceling all sporting events. Right. They're not doing that. So they're cherry picking here and there what they want to do, what they don't want to do. But they are clinging and doubling down on the masks because it's a culture war totem. It's this mystical little almost quasi-religious symbol to them now. And the Republicans are on the other side of it, and they're good Democrats, so they're going to fight the culture war. And parents can go screw themselves and so can the kids. That's basically their attitude. But what happens if the political analysis changes? Do these Democrats in Virginia really want to vote? Public opinion is moving. Public opinion is moving on this. People are sick of this. People are tired of this. The Omicron wave, those cases are crashing. You are seeing some of the mask requirements elsewhere starting to expire. Democratic governors are pulling back on vaccine mandates for state workers. The tide is turning, which is the good news here, which is why I'm saying keep the pedal to the metal, keep it up. If they start to realize, uh uh-oh, Cases are crashing. Our excuses are running out. Patience is running out among Virginians, even some who are center or center left. Yunkin might be about to beat us and put us all on the record to vote what? Against parents in favor of indefinite continued masking? I don't think that all the Democrats in Virginia are going to want to take that vote. So I wonder... Because we've seen this now in Falls Church City, which is one of these blue areas in northern Virginia. They have decided to throw in the towel. They are phasing out the mask mandate and bringing in mask optional, which is what the governor demanded. There'll be a few days, it looks like, you know, behind schedule, but they're doing it. They've given up on the resistance. Will Arlington, Alexandria, Loudoun, will they do the same thing? Fairfax. Will there be phone calls made? Little Democrat to Democrat phone calls. From some of these state senators and and leaders in the Democratic Party saying, hey, school district, fellow Democrats, we don't want to vote on this. The Republicans are going to have the votes to score a major political win. Then you will have no choice but to do this. Youngkin's going to have a giant victory. It'll be bipartisan. Some of us don't want to take this vote because things are shifting beneath our feet and we don't want to get saddled with a permanent masking vote, basically. So maybe you guys should find a way, after all, to get rid of the mask mandates. You can do it maybe a little bit on your own timeline so it doesn't seem like you're totally capitulating to Yunkin. God forbid, because he's a Republican, right? But maybe you should spare us this embarrassment, spare us a loss, and find a way to comply. I wonder if that's what might start to happen here. Or are they going to do like the Senate Democrats did in the U.S. Senate and just sprint directly into a brick wall? 
on the filibuster, right? They knew they didn't have the votes, but they were angry. They were afraid of their base. They had to throw a big, giant tantrum no matter what because they were too far dug in, too far gone. So they sprinted into a brick wall. And now they are lying on the ground with seeing, you know, seeing stars over their head, wondering what hit them. And what hit them was their own stupidity and their own tribal, short-sighted idiocy. Do Virginia Democrats want to do the same thing? That's a choice I think they're going to have to make for themselves with their buddies in the teachers unions and the school bureaucracy, the government school bureaucracy in some of these holdout counties in the coming days. And now, as promised, I want to read to you from a piece written by my best friend, Mary Catherine Hamm. And she's written it at The Atlantic, which I'm thrilled because The Atlantic is a center left elite publication that hopefully it is definitely widely read by sort of elite lefty types. And because it is sort of uh, well-known and well-regarded and prestigious in those circles, perhaps this message will get through to some of those very same people, the very same people who I said their mentality needs to be defeated and broken. Maybe Mary Catherine's argument will get through to some of them. Headline in the Atlantic by Mary Catherine Ham: Kids shouldn't have to be resilient. Everyday parents have a choice between fear and carrying on. So Mary Catherine begins this piece by mentioning that six years ago, on a Saturday afternoon, she got a call from a law enforcement officer informing her that her husband had died in a bike accident during a charity race for cancer research. I remember that day very well because I was in the car with her when she got that call. It was one of the worst days of my life, certainly the worst day of her life. She had a toddler at home and was pregnant with their second. And she found out that her young husband was dead. And a few days later, she spoke at a memorial for Jake. Jake Brewer was his name. And in that moment, she stood up And said, I am not going to live in fear. I'm not going to allow my daughters to grow up living in fear because this terrible thing has happened. And she asked everyone there to help hold them accountable. She said, we have to live full lives. That is what he would have wanted. It's what we have to do for these girls. It would be unfair to rob them of that, to live understandably in fear, having gone through this trauma. That is what she understood to be what she had to do, her role and duty as a mother in that moment. So she goes on to write, tying it into what we're seeing play out now. I still have to fight my protective instincts. Nearly every day I feel that familiar frisson of anxiety, a tightening in my stomach when my six-year-old wants a skateboard, a jump in my heart rate when my eight-year-old asks to go sledding. But that feeling isn't a reliable gauge of risk to my children. A quick search of CDC data suggests that skateboarding causes fewer injuries than trips to the playground or playing soccer do, which I let my kids do without thinking twice. I thank my adrenaline-pumping amygdala for its work and pass the baton to my more rational neocortex on parenting decisions. Tolerating risk for my kids is tough but vital, so I practice. Mary Catherine writes, unfortunately, if understandably, the message in the early days of the pandemic was to do the opposite, 
The public health message, stay home, stay safe, had the advantage of being simple. But the slogan, restrictions, and the intense social pressure that accompanied them actively discouraged logical, individualized analysis. If you weren't at high risk for severe COVID yourself, you could still carry the disease. Discussions of trade-offs were verboten. Going to an outdoor neighborhood gathering or seeing family was tantamount to the morally depraved murder of undetermined numbers of grandmas and immunocompromised people. She said, it is not an exaggeration, that tone of some of the media coverage or on-the-ground sentiment, especially in deep blue areas of the country, where, as CNN's Chris Saliza noted, many kept their COVID diagnoses secret for fear of being labeled COVID sinners. A one-size-fits-all approach to risk, top-down encouragement to take as few risks as possible may have been reasonable in 2020 before we properly understood how the coronavirus was transmitted and before we had the vaccines. Spurning risk analysis made us all worse at it. And children have paid the highest price. Here comes the data. This is from Mary Catherine Ham writing at The Atlantic. Children are the least at-risk population, but in many areas of the country, they continue to face draconian mitigation policies, either in their name or in the name of protecting their elders. As David Leonhart wrote in the New York Times, we inflicted, collectively, we've inflicted, quote, more harm to children in exchange for less harm to adults, end quote. You don't have to be a psychologist to see something wrong with that exchange. In our focus on one threat, we've let a thousand others flourish. Learning loss, destabilization of public school systems due to under-enrollment, self-harm, behavioral problems. The major metropolitan areas of the United States were a global outlier in 2020 and 2021 for extended school closures. Schools were largely open in Europe and Scandinavia and many other spots in the U.S., Schools closed again in Chicago while the teachers union negotiated COVID protocols this month, leading no doubt to yet more learning loss. Children as young as two still mask on public transportation in Oregon, while children in Boston learn in classrooms with the windows open to 20 degree breezes. Some schools are attempting to get every child into N95 masks or the like, since the CDC acknowledged that cloth masks don't offer much protection. Beyond schools, we restrict children's ability to participate in public life. Major American cities require proof of vaccination for them to eat at a Chuck E. Cheese. In Minneapolis, even children ages 2 to 5 must show negative COVID tests to get into a restaurant. Most children are neither in grave danger, nor do they pose a grave danger to others especially now that vaccines are widely, freely available. But we routinely treat them as if they were. She goes through and talks about some of that hysteria. She quotes, for example, Justice Sotomayor and her hysterical, totally wrong misinformation that she put into the ether during recent oral arguments that we fact-checked here. Example after example, she goes through. She talks about the fight that Governor Youngkin is now having in Virginia. She concludes this way. Clapping back. In a very smart data driven way at the people who claim that unmasking kids and treating kids as low risk, which is what they are. 
They say, oh, this is like a form of child sacrifice. She says, this child sacrifice debate doesn't serve children or parents. Adults should do our best to make rational calls for our kids to weigh costs and benefits. Kids are resilient has been a refrain of the pandemic used to justify the removal of regular school, birthday parties, talking with friends at lunch. But it's not a kid's job to be resilient. It's a parent's job to be resilient for them, to spare them from our fears and worries. And the longer we abdicate, the more damage we will do. Read the whole thing at The Atlantic, Mary Catherine Ham. Really good piece. Kids shouldn't have to be resilient. And it aligns with the whole argument that we're having in Virginia and nationwide right now. Really good stuff. Important stuff. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show, Josh Crossauer will join us coming up in the next hour to talk about the state of politics in our country right now. Some bruising polling for President Biden. More stuff out just today. One poll has him now at 39% approval overall. That's not among independents. That's everyone. Meanwhile, Jim Cooper, a Democratic congressman from Tennessee, safe district for the Democrats, he is looking around and looking for the exits. He is out. Another one. Announcing his retirement at the end of this term, not seeking re-election. That would be House Democrat number 29 already, who's thrown in the towel. They've had enough, and they see what's coming, they think, in November. Let's make it happen. The Guy Benson Show middle hour coming up. You don't want to go anywhere, including Senator Tom Tillis. It's straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour on the guy benson show from new york city thank you for listening i'm guy benson three to six eastern every weekday guybensonshow.com for the free podcast catch me on gutfeld tonight with Greg and Kat, Tyrus and crew. That's 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Always looking forward to that. Fox News alert as we begin here the hour. The Dow ends the day in the red. Down 67 points, closing at 34,296. Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst. And Josh, welcome back. Hey, great to be back, guy. We spent most of the first hour talking about the battle over schools and masking and really focusing on Virginia and what's happening with Governor Yunkin. Before we get to national politics, I do think it's a national issue and a fight with national implications. I just wonder what you make of it right now. It seems like maybe the Democrats might be waking up to the notion that maybe they're not on the right side of this public opinion wise, especially as public opinion appears to be shifting. Yeah, if you looked at the results in last year's elections in Virginia and New Jersey and other jurisdictions, the one connective tissue, the one narrative that really connected all those results 
together was frustration and, and dissatisfaction with the current COVID policies, over, overly regu- regulatory COVID policies. It affected schools. It affected, you know, you know mandates, mask mandates in, in New Jersey. And that was a big message for the Republican candidate up there. It affected crime, uh, the crime rate and, you know, being expedited with kids not being in school and being on the streets. Um, it had a whole host of secondary implications that really transformed our politics and continue to to this day. Um, I, I, you know, as far as right now, it, it does feel like events are, are, are moving well ahead of where the White House and where a lot of Democratic campaigns are. There was a really good story, I thought, in the New York Times today about how Democrats, governors, uh, legislators are really scrambling to catch up with public opinion that, that's turning away from the, the, the public health uh, leadership and really wants uh, to get back to normal, especially after this Omicron wave quickly burns through the country. And, um, the, you know, you, you can look at the election results, you can look at the polling that's moving in, in that direction. Um, but but you can even, you know, look in Virginia. Um, it's not just Governor Youngkin. It's a, a Democratic state senator right. from Fairfax County who put out a, a statement uh, yesterday saying, you know, he's going to support legislation ending mask mandates in, 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 in Virginia at some point if the schools don't move and with their own timetables and, and start to show some guidance to frustrated parents on that front. Do you so think, because I, I, my theory, and I, I made this point in the first hour, my theory of the case is I don't think there are a bunch of Senate Democrats in Virginia who want to take that vote, especially if they're going to lose it. I don't think they want to take that vote. I think they might start to pressure some of these school districts to stop being recalcitrant, to stop holding out, to maybe drop these lawsuits and these fights with Yunkin and just maybe do it. Because I feel like if they're going to lose that vote, they don't want to cast a vote in favor of indefinite masking, the way things are moving. That's just my read on it from where I sit. Yeah, the middle ground, the political sweet spot right now is setting a timetable, benchmarks for when you're going to phase out the masking policies in schools. That, that is where you can unite Republicans and Democrats. And the problem, as you've, you've noted, Guy, is that the, count, the, the blue county school systems don't want to do that. They don't even want to take the first step. To, to meeting folks halfway. So Youngkin kind of forced the issue with his executive order upon taking office, and now we're starting to have these conversations. Yeah, and I uh, think was, he's he's yeah. dragging them. He's dragging them in his direction, which I think is, is very good news. You mentioned some of the dissatisfaction in the country. I want to ask you about dissatisfaction among Senate Democrats in the United States Senate. I'm sure you saw that Politico report in Playbook this morning where – There were multiple sources, senators, aides, and others grousing to reporters saying, you know, what the hell is Chuck Schumer doing in his leadership position, the strategy that he has embarked upon? You and I have talked about it. At times, we've both been sort of mystified by the decisions that Schumer has made in concert with the White House. And now it sounds like it's not just Manchin and Cinema who aren't going along, and apparently, based on this report, Manchin is still furious about the way he's been treated. There are other Democrats who are starting to come out and say, yeah, this is not going well, and they seem to be pointing the finger of blame at the majority leader. This shouldn't have been surprising, taking a vote on something that was sort of disconnected with the issues that voters care about and losing that vote and putting vulnerable Democratic senators on the record for something that could be used against them in an upcoming campaign. It, 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 it reeks of malpractice. And I think what you heard in, that, in those stories, it was a Post story and also a Politico story that, that touched on these same issues. Uh, the running theme is that Senator Schumer seems to care or worry more about his own reelection, his own threat of a primary from an Ocasio-Cortez type in, in New York than he is about managing the interests of his own caucus. It's, it's a Pretty, pretty shocking, frankly, to hear that. You, that, that never, you rarely, you know, Harry Reid had a tough, you know, 
re-election in 2010, man. And he generally, like, almost welcomed his unpopularity uh, because he was tending to the business of his caucus. And he, he let, let, let the internal politics back home play themselves well, out. And by the way, if that's, if that's the opposite of what Schumer's doing and he's making these decisions based on his own desire to avoid attacks from the left flank in a primary – I mean, that might be a very selfish move by him. It might be a stupid way to be a majority leader. But ultimately, you can't just point the finger at him. These people, except for Manchin and Cinema, they all went along with it. So if they're sitting there, you know, pardon my language, but bitching to reporters that Chuck Schumer is putting them in a tough spot, I mean, they're not robots. They don't have to go along with his reelection campaign if it hurts their reelection campaign. And yet they did it anyway. And I think that is a pretty significant indictment for voters and independents and swing voters in some of these purple states in a year that's not going to feel like a, a blue wave year. Yeah, I, I think the other I mean, that's very true. And, and look, politics is a team sport. There is a strong internal incentive to, to get on board once once the leader sets a plan. So I, I understand those, those cross currents that a lot of these senators are dealing with. Uh, we, we saw this with the, with the Republicans during the, the Trump years as well. But the other issue that really doesn't get as much attention as it should is that a lot of the biggest donors in the Democratic Party, uh, would, and we're talking, you know, like you know, the folks who wrote checks to uh, both Biden, Warren, a lot of the progressive uh, donors are, are really adamant about the issues of voting rights, about, about Build Back Better. They are not moderates. <laughs> These are folks that are ideologically driven, and you've seen more ideological money uh, be, be creeping into Democrats. And so, so this would be this would if the Democrats, if the roles were reversed, the Democrats would be saying these millionaire and billionaire radicals have bought and paid for. The Republican Party, and they are doing their bidding over the bidding of the people and the will of the people. I mean, that that's kind of what is happening here, except it's happening within the ranks of the party that pretends to be against big money in politics. Right. It makes the Koch brothers seem quaint, <laughs> given the amount yes. of money that we're seeing. Yes. Not just in politics, by the way, but in interest groups and bureaucracies that are emerging on some of these pet issues that have become politically toxic for, for Democrats, including crime and, 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 and a whole host of, of cultural hotspots. Um, and, and, and I think you know, Democrats have been really a really effective fundraising party in the last you know, six, eight years, especially since Donald Trump's presidency. And I think they oh, yeah. kind of got addicted. No, they love money. money in politics. They love money in politics. They oh, yeah, say they hate it, but they love money in politics as long as it's their money in politics. Um, you know, so there's obviously some hypocrisy there. Josh, I want to ask you about this as well. We don't have to delve into the whole incident uh, yesterday at the White House with the Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey, uh, our favorite stupid SOB. He will be here later today on the show to talk about what happened. But it seemed like anger and frustration boiling over. He's now called both of our correspondents stupid or said they asked stupid questions just in the matter of a few days. It might be because he's uh, getting cranky looking at his own polling numbers, which are awful. There's this new Harvard-Harris poll out today. He's at 39 percent. Approval overall, three, nine, 39 percent approval. And I mean, that's obviously a dreadful top line number. What also stood out to me was the strongly approve versus strongly disapprove. So this is like, you know, the most intense sentiment. He has 18 percent of the country strongly approving of his job performance, 18 percent, 40 percent strongly disapprove of his job performance. So there are more people in this poll who strongly disapprove of Biden's job performance than approve in any way at 39%, right? That seems to be 
a significant enthusiasm gauge ahead of November as well. Numbers like that. Last word to you. Yeah, that's a that's what makes Biden's political Biden's political situation even worse than Obama's and even Trump's back in 2018. Not only is his job approval around the same low level, but he does not have a base that's going to show up to the polls for him. That's going to fight for him. That's going to going to really engage in the elections. And that if you think 2010 was bad or 2014 was bad, I mean 2022 is just all the signs are there for, for a very large wave election. Just not just because Biden's job approval is low, but because of just not a lot of base enthusiasm for him. And by the way, he picked his own problem. He, he created his own problems because he raised expectations so high for progressives and now doesn't have anything. Well, he says he's outperforming all the expectations, which almost no one believes. 5% of people agreed with that in the NBC poll out yesterday. Josh Crossauer, National Journal, Fox News Radio political analyst. Thank you, Josh. Always appreciate it. Good stuff. And we will continue after this. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. So just recently here on the show, I cited data that in terms of job growth, In the United States, over the course of the pandemic, 17 of the 20 top states on a key employment metric, like recovering jobs had been lost during the COVID recession, 17 of the 20 states at the top of the list in the United States were run by Republicans, were red states or had Republican governors. And I had joked, a little snarky comment, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. And if I recall correctly, Two of those three blue states were North Carolina, which is otherwise pretty red, with the state relatively dominated by Republicans beyond just the governor. And then Colorado, whose governor has bucked the trend of his fellow partisans by being much more permissive, much more realistic, much more data driven on COVID. But still, 17 out of 20, that is quite a striking number. Then there's this story from the Wall Street Journal. Texas and Arizona have recovered all the jobs lost when COVID-19 hit. The two states, along with Idaho and Utah, what do those states all have in common, I wonder? Ascended from pandemic depths thanks to population growth, shifts by businesses and workers away from coastal urban areas. Reading now from the story itself, that was the headline and subheadline. Texas and Arizona have joined two other states in recovering all the jobs they lost at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, leading a trend that is expected to include another dozen states by the middle of the year. The states, which also include Utah and Idaho, have benefited from demographic shifts before and during the pandemic, experiencing outsized payroll growth in retail, warehousing, technology, and transportation industries. Companies have moved operations to these states, and workers have moved in as well, sometimes leaving more crowded and expensive urban areas. The states, all Republican-controlled, have also had relatively relaxed COVID-19 restrictions during the pandemic, which economists say softened the blow on their economies. I know we hear a lot from the likes of Jen Psaki and, of course, her boss, the president of the United States, who attack Republican governors at every opportunity, including the Republican governors of Arizona and Texas. But Doug Ducey and Greg Abbott, and, of course, they go after Ron DeSantis in Florida as well, 
their decisions and their policies are the reason that the U.S. economy is not in much worse shape than it is. Right. Inflation is a big problem. Wage growth is being swamped by that inflation and the cost of things going up. But the Biden people constantly want to point out this or that. Oh, look at this metric on job growth. Look at this metric on unemployment. Look at the reason that those numbers nationally are where they are. The fact that Biden has any positive story to tell is because of red states and Republican governors primarily doing exactly the opposite of the things that Biden recommends on COVID, for example. And for which Biden attacks them on a regular basis. I've said before, he should be thanking them. He should be sending them bouquets of flowers. Thank you for keeping the American economy afloat. Thank you for not allowing Dr. Anthony Fauci to dictate every single thing that's happening in your state. Because without you, Governors Abbott, DeSantis, Ducey, and others, the economy, broadly speaking, would be in far rougher seas. And I know the argument comes back from the left saying, oh, but look at all the death and destruction in these states. And that, of course, leaves out some of the blue states with the most restrictions that are near the top on deaths per capita from COVID. It leaves out facts like Florida having the highest vaccination rate of any Trump won 2020 state in the country above the national average and still getting a rough wave during Delta, which happened to be more deadly than Omicron. Part of that was bad luck. They sort of ignore all of those factors to just say, oh, this is COVID deaths and having the economy open. I hope all that money was worth it because all these people died. Again, it is nowhere near that simple. It is much more complex. And also having people out and about working, earning incomes, being employed, going to school. That has many other effects that are positive beyond just economic data and a few numbers on a spreadsheet. There are deep societal and cultural and, yes, health-related benefits to having a robust open economy with a lower incidence of things like you know depression, suicide attempts, economic despair. Right. The more lockdowns you have, the more restrictions you have, the more likely those other factors, which matter very much to the well-being, the holistic well-being of human beings and society broadly, the more likely those things are going to flare up and be more acute. And the more open the economy, the less likely those side effects are to rear their head. So there are trade-offs. And people who pretend that the trade-offs don't exist, I think, are playing a very simple-minded, often ideological and partisan game. It's not a serious way to go about a discussion of public policy. And so these good statistics, these strong economic numbers, primarily from these red states, they vindicate, I think, in large measure, the decisions made by those leaders that have been so vilified by so many in the Democratic establishment, in the media, and elsewhere. And many of their citizens, especially children, are better off because of those decisions. And I think any serious analysis of public policy during this pandemic will take that broader view 
And that's why stories like this one in the Wall Street Journal and the stats that we've highlighted, I think, are highly relevant to the after-action analyses and reports that are already starting to be done and that will absolutely be done in the form of research and books and sociological and psychological analyses for, I would guess, years to come. It's a big part of the puzzle, not just a small fringe issue, which is why we're bringing you this information here. On The Guy Benson Show, we'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back on The Guy Benson Show from New York City. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight. See you there on Fox News Channel, 11 p.m. Eastern. We are pleased to welcome back to the show Senator Tom Tillis, Republican of North Carolina. Senator, great to have you back here. Good afternoon. Great to be back, Guy. I saw that you put out a statement involving U.S. policy and the Biden administration and our collective posture as America toward Russia and Putin. You talk about his tyranny and this potential invasion that he appears to be preparing for. You feel like our country has a duty to stand up to Putin in your view, what does that look like? What does standing up to him look like, practically speaking? Well, I think a part of it are, you know, I voted for the Nord Stream 2 sanctions, which uh, failed the, uh, failed to get passed out of the Senate. Uh, oh, they filibustered it, which is hilarious, isn't it? That it was, it was, uh, the irony was not lost on most of the members, but, but they, um, We've got to use every device. Number one, I support sending lethal aid to Ukraine. But the fact of the matter is Russia has mastered the border in a way that I think would, uh, by most experts' account, would be a, a swift and decisive invasion wherever they wanted to go in the Ukraine. So with that as a threat, we have to have our NATO partners and allies prepared to make it economically untenable for them to do it. They need to make it clear what they're going to do. Now, some have a posture they're going to wait until after the invasion. I think the mere fact that, that Putin has mastered the border should be enough for the sanctions to go into place. And then back at, at least home, some of them, we've got to get we, we've got to get Biden to recognize that the most powerful weapon that we have, non-lethal weapon, is regening our energy industry here and giving countries like Germany a viable alternative to 50% of their energy coming from the uh, from Russia. It makes no sense at all. And it's obvious, and most experts agree. The majority leader, Chuck Schumer, has requested a senators-only classified briefing behind closed doors on this situation. What are you hoping to hear at that briefing and what do you make of the timing of it? Because to some extent, it feels like this could be imminent, some sort of incursion by Russia. On the other hand, a lot of the experts believe that Putin might wait till after the Olympics. So there might be some time here. Just your thoughts on those two points. Well, first, I think we're going to hear what we heard about a month ago when I was in a classified briefing. Um, and I don't think the, situa the situation's only escalated. Uh, so we we may get a few more details in, in terms of uh, the the. Uh, formation of troops in Belarus, the, the uh, uh, movements that may be helpful. But I think the reality is most of us believe that, that Putin is more likely than not to invade Ukraine. The question is how far they go in, um, to what extent they control energy assets in Ukraine. From a timing standpoint, I don't know what it is about Putin and Winter Olympics, but uh, you know this is not a, a, a new script for him. He's dusting off exactly what he did in Crimea after the Olympics. 
Um, I think that he's unlikely to do it before the Olympics, but very likely to do it after the Olympics. The the climate, uh, the window of opportunity, uh, the uh, the, the ground condition, everything else that they need to actually be able to move a lot of their heavy equipment uh, can fit into that time frame. And I believe that he's more likely than not going to do it. That's actually somewhat helpful potentially because if there's a discussion to be had about preemptive sanctions, that would be very painful for him. There is perhaps a window of time there. And if there's also, as you discussed, a move to equip the Ukrainians with more lethal defensive aid, if he's going to wait till after the Olympics, it's not a long period of time. But it's not tomorrow, right? There's a few weeks. So that delay could potentially be painful for him and Russia, couldn't it? I think so. I think if if we work better at posturing uh, with some of our NATO partners and allies, uh, just with uh, some of the discussions now about movement of some troops, not in Ukraine proper, but in and around the region, if we get more uh, – aid to them over the course of uh, of a month versus a couple of weeks. And if we go ahead and implement some of these sanctions, I think we need to have a ghost of Christmas future moment with Putin. Mm-hmm. Go ahead and make it very clear what we're going to do and say we're doing it now because you have 100,000 plus troops massed on the border with anyone could see is a malicious intent. So let's go ahead and prove to them what we're willing to do. You hear a lot of a lot of people in NATO, you hear uh, Blinken say that they would be severe. Why not go ahead and implement them and say they're here because you've already taken a provocative position. So let us let us give you an eye of what's going to be in place and continue to be in place. You withdraw your troops, we can talk about snapping back the sanctions. But waiting until they do it makes no sense whatsoever, um, which is why we voted on Nord Stream, why we thought that was helpful. We we think we have to get Germany uh, uh, more decisive about what it means to have sweeping sanctions. Let's put them in place. Senator, that reminds me of a point you were just making and a question that was just asked, posed to the president just a few days ago by our colleague, Jackie Heinrich, here at Fox News. She asked, why, sir, I'm paraphrasing, but it's close, why, sir, are you waiting for Putin to make the first move within this context? And the president snapped at her and said it was a stupid question. It sounds like you don't believe it's a stupid question at all. No, as a matter of fact, I think it's a it's a vital question. And if if we think that the that the sanctions are more likely to have an impact before they invade, once they are there, then they'll use energy policy to possibly lessen some of the impact that some of the uh, Western European nations will have because of their dependence on solar, or not on solar, but because of their lack of dependence on uh, on energy sources like nuclear in Germany. Um, I think that we we need to prove to them what the family of nations who are opposed to an invasion of Ukraine are willing to do and how painful it would be before they cross the border. Yeah, part of the problem, if it sounds like. It afterwards, this is going to be an occupation for some period of time. Yeah, part of the problem seems to be that we're not sure on our side in the NATO family what we're willing to do. It seems like the U.S. and the U.K. and a few others are willing to play very hardball. Other countries are hedging. As you mentioned, Germany being perhaps foremost among them, that is perhaps the disunity and the indecision that Putin is counting on and could prey on. Senator Tillis, I want to shift to the home front. I interjected briefly at the top of the interview about the filibuster by the Senate Democrats, uh, what, two weeks ago on Thursday on Nord Stream 2 pipeline and how they were railing against the filibuster at that time as a racist relic, and then they went ahead and used it. Again, themselves, they've used it hundreds of times in the past. 
That fight now appears to be over, at least for this Congress, thanks to Senators Manchin and Cinema. Are you disturbed, though, how close they came on that other side of the aisle? Forty-eight senators were willing to blow up the Senate, break the rules, to change the rules, to end the legislative filibuster, something that almost all of them had called sacred and untouchable, had signed letters pledging to steadfastly protect. I mean, almost every last one of them has either been an enthusiastic participant in filibusters or is on the record adamantly opposed to altering the filibuster any further. And then almost every single one of them turned right around and voted to do exactly that anyway. Is that a concern to you? And does that underscore the stakes, for example, of the midterm elections, since we know what Democrats might be willing to do with just a few more seats? Oh, it absolutely does. I I think that this is going to, because of what Schumer did, uh, this is going to become a litmus test in Democratic primaries. It could even become a litmus test in some Republican primaries, because now there's this rationalization. I did an op-ed earlier, uh, uh, about a week ago, that says, let's not take the bait and have Republicans say they came close, and now we've got to do it when we get into power. We have to stand against it and stand for the institution. But I do believe that this is this is going to become an every Congress thing when one party hits the trifecta, they have the White House in Congress. Uh, I'm very disappointed by the members who signed the same letter I did after President Trump called for nuking the filibuster uh, 34 times, I believe. I still felt strongly that, you know, we, we, we can't let some of our short-term gains destroy this institution. And uh, Joe Manchin is the only person who signed that letter who stood by what he said. Everybody else tried to explain why this is different. Well, on the Democratic side, right? All the Republicans right. were consistent. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just ask uh, just ask Harry Reid, if you could rest his soul now when he thought he was just going to carve out a portion of the executive calendar. I supported what Mitch did because we were finishing what Reid started. But the legislative calendar is very different. The tradition of the filibuster. I mean, Chuck Schumer knows a lot about the filibuster. He used it 328 times Mm -hmm. in the prior Congress. And he, he designed a strategy around filibustering judges back uh, dating to the uh, Bush administration. Yeah, then he w. said he Bush. regretted it, right? So all these guys also said they regretted blowing up the filibuster when it hurt them, right? Because they did it in 2013 for short-term gain. Then it hurt them in a huge way starting in 2017. And a bunch of them were all on the record, oh, we wish we had never done that. That was a low moment for the Senate. Chris Coons, who spearheaded the letter, was out front saying this can't happen again. I regret it. And then he... <laughs> Flip-flopped. The guy who spearheaded the effort. I mean, if he's going to do it, I feel like I have very low expectations for the rest of them. No, I think I think you can pretty much count on any member who's there outside of Cinema and Mansion voting to nuke it every chance that they get and going into the future. And quite honestly, I believe that there were probably a dozen or more who didn't really uh, hope that it wouldn't happen, but did not have the courage to vote against it. Yeah, because um, they're afraid of the base. I, I'm not... Yeah, I'm not sure if, uh, again, because they're going to use this as a litmus test. Now, let's let's look ahead. The same sort of mentality to go so far left, these folks need to recognize that they are laying the groundwork for a success in the Senate and a success in the House in this election cycle. I believe that the House has won, and I believe right now if the election were held today, uh, there would be a Republican majority in the Senate. Um, and then what we have to do is make sure – that looking to 2024 with the disastrous administration we have here, we have a real shot at hitting the trifecta again in just two and a half short years. 
But we also need to be intellectually honest and consistent, and that is preserving the filibuster, doing the hard work, and recognizing that the you've got three times where they effectively had uh, uh, supermajorities in the uh, uh, in the last hundred years. We got um, the Obamacare, uh, the Great Society, and the New Deal. Those were sweeping changes in policy that are in place today. We do not want to turn the Senate into a rubber stamp for programs that could bankrupt this country and challenge our freedom. Well, and I'll I'll just filibuster so important. I'll make the easiest prediction in the world. If what you say comes true and Republicans win both houses and then win the presidency back as well, all of those colleagues of yours who signed the letter, then abandoned the letter, they'll sign a new letter. Or at least they'll come out. All of a sudden, oh. they'll, they'll find religion again. Oh, yes, the filibuster, our old friend. It'll no longer yeah. be a Jim Crow relic. I mean, it's just so obvious and transparent and cynical. Last question, Senator Tillis. You mentioned the disastrous administration currently running the show. President Biden last week at his press conference said that he believes he is outperforming all expectations as president. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, <laughs> He may be, may be right uh, because we uh, we thought it was going to be a disastrous administration. Um, he he came in with an opportunity. He said he was going to end COVID by July fourth of last year. It's been a disaster with COVID. It's been a disaster in Afghanistan. The economy. For him to continue to blame COVID on some of the disastrous policy positions that he's taken that have kept more people out of work entire industries being threatened. The American people are smarter than that. And the matter of fact, Biden is making a priority the things that the American people are least concerned with. Mm-hmm. Um, when he's willing to blow up the Senate uh, for a voting rights bill that the American people do not even consider a priority, we should always make it harder to cheat, easier to vote. They want to know what their economic future looks like. They want to know how we're going to pay the bills for the national debt that we've taken trillions of dollars over the last year in response to COVID. The American people are smarter than that. The president can say whatever he wants to in these failed press conferences, but the American people are smarter, and he's going to see the real scorecard come November. Tom Tillis, Republican, U.S. Senator, North Carolina. Great to have you back here on the show, sir. We'll talk again soon, I hope. You too, guys. Thank you. We will step aside and be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jesse Waters dominates the ratings as he debuts Jesse Waters primetime on Fox News Channel. Up next, congratulations, Jesse. Go get him. And with any luck, sir, you'll become the president's second favorite stupid SOB. Back on the Guy Benson show. That was last night on Special Report. I was on the panel and Brett Bayer has the panelists do the tomorrow's headlines today prediction. And that was an easy prediction that Jesse Waters would win the ratings battle in his big debut show at 7 p.m. Eastern with Jesse Waters primetime. Of course, he did score that ratings victory as expected. And the joke at the very end about the stupid SOB, obviously, relates to a little dust-up at the White House yesterday when President Biden was exasperated by a question from our colleague Peter Ducey who was asking about inflation and the elections, and I guess Biden, either not remembering or not caring that he was on an open mic, reacted, let's say unpleasantly, cut 11. Do you think inflation is a political liability ahead of the midterm? That's a great asset. More inflation. What a stupid son. 
What a stupid son of a B-word. Well, we have that stupid SOB joining us at the start of the next hour. We'll be very pleased to welcome him back to the show with that new title uh, given to him and bestowed upon him by the president of the United States. Biden phoned Peter Ducey after this sort of blew up and apparently smoothed things over and cleared the air. There is some question over whether or not he straight up apologized. He apparently told Ducey that it was not personal. I can maybe try to clear that up with Ducey when we have him coming up. I just think that overall, the most interesting component of this little kerfuffle has nothing to do with Ducey or Biden. I will say that I think Peter Ducey has played this perfectly. He laughed it off on the five, which was hilarious. He was joking that maybe fact check true. He is that. And Waters was cracking up because they were going back and forth. He was again sort of waving it off later on Hannity and saying there's so many important things happening in the world with Ukraine and everything else. You know, this is not that big of a deal. I think that's exactly the type of approach needed by Ducey. He's being a professional. He's moving past it. Whereas we remember how the press all reacted when Trump would go after reporters. If this had been the exact same exchange with Trump and let's say Jiminy Acosta from CNN, Acosta, I saw someone tweeted, would show up on the air in a neck brace as a victim. Can you believe it's a scary time to be a journalist and all the hyperbole? Ducey was like, it's fine. Biden, it sounds like, called him up and basically apologized. That's the right, normal thing to do. It is the reaction of the press that has been the most interesting. Because, look, I mean, Biden famously said he would fire anyone who demeaned anyone and didn't treat others with dignity and respect. He said that earlier in his administration. I mean, these are his standards. Everyone saying, oh, but what about Trump? Yeah, I defended our colleagues here when Trump insulted them too. But beyond that, Biden campaign is the anti-Trump to be kinder to people, to treat people with dignity. That was part of his message. So those are his standards. But again, this is more about the press. The people who were openly sort of egging Biden on, laughing about it, high-fiving about it, making it seem like Ducey deserved it, These journalists who were all in a total frenzy about a crossword between a president and a journalist just a few years ago, they took a very different approach on this one. And once again, they are telling on themselves lots of hacks who have lost trust for good reason. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show with that stupid SOB, Peter Ducey, straight ahead. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. On this Tuesday from New York City, I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday and around the clock on demand on the podcast, which is growing by leaps and bounds. Thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Guy Benson Show. Everything available right there. 
And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Delicious and refreshing all year round. TheLongDrink.com. They're expanding even further soon. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Also programming note, I'll see you tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, joining the panel with their usual crew, plus, I believe, Ari Fleischer tonight. So that should be fun. Joining us now is Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. He has another new title that the president gave him yesterday. And, Peter, it's great to have you back here. Thanks, Guy. Good to be back. All right. So we have to talk about what happened. I know you were on the five. You're on Hannity. You sort of blew it off. I think you handled it very well, as I mentioned earlier in the show. I will ask you this question, though, about the president's phone call to you, because I've seen now an argument or a dispute arising on social media, people saying, well, he sounds like he called Ducey, but didn't really apologize. He just said it wasn't personal. Did you see or understand the phone call to be an apology? I, you could say that, but when the president calls from the Oval Office and he says, it's nothing personal, pal, and, you know, I wasn't particularly upset about what had happened anyway, I, I think that that's enough just to kind of put it behind us. And I know now uh, how much attention people pay to off-color comments like that from the president. Um, but I, I think that he wanted to just clear the air and he wanted to address it and he wanted to make sure that he didn't, uh, that I didn't think he was uh, talking to me in a malicious way. And so it, it, it was a nice call. We talked for a couple minutes right after I did Brett Baer's show last night. So the word and, sorry uh, was not expressed? Uh, it was not, but that's okay. Fair enough. Now, you've probably been called worse, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Right? In fairness? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We saw it's also just strange because these things, these controversies can take on a life of their own. Like, you know, you have late night comedians who are losing in the ratings to Greg Gutfeld, but nevertheless still have shows. And, you know, one example, Jimmy Kimmel was saying, well, this guy, meaning you, is, in fact, a dumb SOB. Is it kind of weird to see that sort of sniping coming from cultural figures like that? Or does it just in your mind, come with the territory. It's got to be a little bit surreal. It is. It is surreal. Um, and it's a little bit weird just because these are all guys that I've, I've watched, um, forever. And (laughs) to see them kind of just talking about something that happened over the course of my day at work, it's kind of, it's very strange. Do you think the question was a good question? I think that it, was a fair question based on what the president said he wanted to talk about. And uh, guy, we've talked about this. Like when I go into a Saki briefing or when I'm going into a Q and a session with the president, I spend so much time preparing and I, I kind of rehearse these things. Uh, not rehearse. That's not the right word. I, you think them through. I try to think of everything that could possibly be said uh, to, you know, to counter my questions, whatever. And I went in there with questions about crime that I had spent a lot of time on, and I've been trying to get to the president for weeks. Um, But he said he wasn't going to take a question about anything off topic. And so I just came up with this inflation question uh, in less than 10 seconds, 
like maybe maybe no thought was given to it at all. So you and had so, so you had a bunch of questions ready to go. My understanding you were talking about how you had a bunch of crime questions, for example, because you had brought that up with Saki earlier. And the decision that you need to make in that moment is, do I shout the crime question at the guy and he's probably not going to answer it given the rules here? Or do I, off the top of my head, have an extemporaneous question related to inflation and maybe he'll answer it? It seems like you asked that question. He didn't answer it, but he said something. It became news. Yeah. And I, you know, I didn't hear him say it. <laughs> maybe my opinion about it would be different. Wait, if I heard how him did say you it. find out about it then? I was walking. Um, it was like several minutes later. Uh, we had been ushered out, and the way that you have to go out sometimes, like they take you down a set of stairs through the White House basement, out a door, and then you're kind of walking outside to get back to the briefing room. And it was when I got back into the briefing room when somebody said, ah, did you hear what the president said? And I didn't. <laughs> like, I, I thought it was somebody just kind of pulling my leg, uh, but it wasn't. And then, you know, within within an hour of that, uh, it's like the number one viral thing on Twitter. And did your phone, phone melt down it's the president? Did your phone blow up with texts and everything? Because, I mean, so many people saw it and it became a lead story. Yeah. And that's one where you hear from people from college right. and from elementary high school, school, even who. <laughs> Yeah, you don't keep in touch with and who I don't even think really like follow the news that closely. But, you know, once it once it pops up on TMZ, uh, I think all all different kinds of uh, people like people with different kinds of interests uh, see it. I had texted you shortly after the clip of Biden months ago saying that he would fire on the spot anyone who treated someone with a lack of decency or dignity. Obviously, he's not going to resign over this, but I wonder if that sort of posturing and that attitude that he had expressed as a candidate and then early as president, if that maybe entered into the decision-making process to call you up and, let's say, clear the air as opposed to apologize? I don't know. I, I think it might just be more of a of a consideration that I've been around him for a long time, like three-ish years now. And uh, he knows I'm not coming at him in bad faith. And uh, I think he, you know, he realized that he said something he didn't mean to say, or at least didn't mean to broadcast and just uh, wanted to clear the air because he knows I'm going to be around. (laughs) Right. You're not going anywhere. And neither, by the way, is Jackie Heinrich, our colleague, who's also on the White House beat. Just a few days prior to that, he called one of her questions stupid. And I've had several guests on the show over the last few days, people who are following this Russia situation very closely, experts, senators, they are all in agreement unanimously that, it, in fact, it was a very pertinent question. But Biden sneered at it, calling it stupid. He used the word stupid, of course. People were paying attention to SOB more, but also stupid with you. I just wonder what you make of the back-to-back stupid word being deployed by the president toward both of our correspondents at this network. It, it just seems like not a great look for him, especially when I think we can, setting aside your incident yesterday, Jackie's question was absolutely anything but stupid. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it might just be something that comes with the territory um, 
when the polls have, are as rough as they have been lately. Right, he's and frustrated. So it, uh, it might just be a thing, whoever it is that's shouting, and we might just be the only ones shouting. What did your fellow White House correspondents say to you? Did you hear from them? Because it was fascinating for me to watch some of the reaction from the media, people who were like this close to dousing themselves in gasoline and setting themselves on fire when President Trump would say things about journalists in recent years. And by the way, Trump insulted people at our network. I would defend our colleagues here. I'm I'm sort of getting used to doing this sort of thing, I guess, with presidents. But people were saying, you know, this is extremely unacceptable, totally intemperate. This is awful for a president to do. This is an attack on journalism. It's putting journalists in danger, all that stuff. And you might say, well, Trump did it more regularly and it's not the same thing. But quite a few of the people in that self-immolation crowd, they seem to kind of make light of this or blow it off or even find it funny or say, perhaps suggest that you deserved it because of who you are and where you work. I just wonder what your reaction has been, maybe not to the president, not to the noise, not to your college buddies, but from your colleagues in the press corps. I think uh, since I laughed it off right away on the five, uh, everybody else is kind of just taking an opportunity to, to laugh with me about it. Somebody, another correspondent from another network came up to me today on the driveway and said, you know, I thought you were more of a smart SOB. Yeah. So it's a lot of stuff like that. Did you make a decision to laugh it off on the five or was it just sort of obvious to you? Like, was that strategic on your part? I'm going to make light of this to let it blow over. Or was it just not serious enough that it just, it, it was your instinct to just make the joke and make the fact check joke that you did with Jesse waters. What was your sort of game plan there? If there was one, no game plan that that was all happening in real time. And so that's just kind of how I felt. What did you want to ask? Cause I know they have these rules and they said only on topic and do people generally respect those rules? I mean, I just don't know quite how that works. Does, does the journalism community, does the press corps say, all right, we'll only ask about stuff that we're allowed to ask about? And if It kind of depends on the day. Uh, the, the question that I want to get at, and it's kind of a two-parter, first of all, the murder rate in this country is nearing a 25-year high. Like, what exactly is he doing about it, considering that we hear so much about COVID and about voting rights like where are we with murders and so that is of interest and also like i know that officials around here like to talk about how well we've give we want more money to police departments that's great what happens like what good does that do if a cop arrests a bad guy and then some progressive prosecutor in a Mm -hmm. big city cuts them loose and so these are the kind of things i want to get to the president about and hopefully we'll have a chance yeah, soon. Maybe next time. And the the exchange can go slightly differently than it did yesterday. You know, Peter, we've mentioned on the air before, we're basically neighbors. We live right in the same neighborhood, just a, a short walk away. Occasionally you will come over for a cocktail, sometimes accompanied by your lovely wife. Next time you swing by the house, I think maybe Adam and I should like invent some new cocktail, a strong one for you. We could maybe call it the stupid SOB. <laughs> well, uh, you know, my wife and I, uh, just for fun, uh, decided to do dry January. So, uh, we got another couple days left of that, but on <laughs> so that February, did not end uh, last night, February 1st at midnight, we'll be over. All right. It's a deal. We've got February 1st circled on the calendar. Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel, White House correspondent, uh, a big 24 hours or so for you. We appreciate you making some time for us here on the Guy Benson show. Thank you. 
Of course. Thanks, Guy. All right. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Yesterday, we did a new version of a segment, a recurring theme, that we like to call Woke Tales. Woke Tales. And the new game is for me to tell you about a woke-related story and then for you to guess if it's actually real or if it's fake. So the story that we brought you yesterday was the allegation in Michigan at some school district that they had put litter boxes in school bathrooms for students who identify as cats and like dress up as furries. That was an actual allegation. It was strenuously denied, and apparently it was not true. So that was in the game of real or not, that was a not. So it's time to play again, real or not, on Woke Tales, and this is the story. A celebrity chef is hiring cultural appropriation specialists to advise on cookbooks to avoid offending people. What do you think? Oh, yeah. This one's obviously real. Via CNN, celebrity chef Jamie Oliver, known to some as the Naked Chef, says he hires teams of, quote, cultural appropriation specialists to vet his recipes and make sure they are safe for publication in his cookbooks. Your immediate reaction is to be defensive and say, for the love of God, really? And then you go, well, we don't want to offend anyone. That's a quote from this chef to the Sunday Times and their culture magazine in an interview published last week. In the interview, Oliver acknowledged that his, quote, empire roast chicken, a chicken recipe involving coriander, turmeric, masala, and cumin, would no longer be appropriate today. A spokesperson for Oliver said that food is all about sharing inspiration from around the world, and we're proud to work with some incredible experts to continue to learn about different cuisines and help us deliver content that is culturally sensitive and inclusive. So the Empire Roast Chicken, I guess, was from his 2011 cookbook. That is now canceled. Empire Roast Chicken, no longer okay a decade later because it's... I guess, culturally appropriated. So I guess he's come under fire for this. And in order to avoid future problems with this crowd, he is hiring these grifters. Imagine this being your job. I guess, look, in this insane, perverted, toxic marketplace of ideas that we're all stewing in right now, there is a spot to come in and make money off of the fear of the woke mob. You're like the the advisor, the consultant on wokeness to make sure that these people come after you. Well, maybe not first. They'll come after you eventually. You can never appease them, but it will keep them off your back for a while. And of course, down the road, things that are fine now won't be fine anymore. So they might come after you again and you'll have to do your indulgences and your apologies and your prostration and all of that. But it's just sort of like a temporary payment like a ransom payment to the woke machine. It's amazing that people make money off of this, make their living off of this. What do you do for a living? You're at a 
dinner party or something. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a cultural appropriation vetter. I'm an advisor on this stuff. I'm a specialist on cultural appropriation. By the way, if I'm a dinner guest at that party, immediately I'm like, oh, how interesting. Walk right away. Do not say another word. Because that person is just looking to cancel someone. No, thank you. And I understand it. If you're a celebrity chef and you want your brand to just be like fun and good and yummy and all that stuff, you don't want to have to deal with these people. The problem is they are insatiable. And the more that you feed in to this whole scheme, the more you empower them. So while I understand the calculation made here, I think it's the wrong one. It's not going to help him in the long run. It's not going to help society in the long run. By the way, relatedly, I saw a story also out of the UK. The BBC is apparently quietly going back and editing old programming from their own archives that would not be considered politically correct or woke anymore today. They are just slowly but surely changing the record of their own program without revealing it, without being transparent about it. That is super creepy and Orwellian, but that is the environment that the woke people have created. One of fear and one of censorship. Fight them, fight them, fight them. We will not be hiring woke placation consultants here at The Guy Benson Show on the happy hour, which I'm sure unto itself is some sort of appropriation. We don't care. And we'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson. Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Thanks for listening. Josh Krasauer of National Journal. He joined us earlier on the program talking national politics from Biden all the way down to the local level, school districts in Virginia, and the huge fight over masking. Really interesting conversation as always with Josh who's a razor-sharp political analyst. Here's part of that discussion. We spent most of the first hour talking about the battle over schools and masking and really focusing on Virginia and what's happening with Governor Yunkin. Before we get to national politics, I do think it's a national issue and a fight with national implications. I just wonder what you make of it right now. It seems like maybe the Democrats might be waking up to the notion that maybe they're not on the right side of this public opinion wise, especially as public opinion appears to be shifting. Yeah. If you looked at the results in last year's elections in Virginia and New Jersey and other jurisdictions, the one connective tissue, the one narrative that really connected all those results together was frustration and dissatisfaction with the current COVID policies over overly regulatory COVID policies. It affected schools. It affected, you know, know, mandates, mask mandates in in New Jersey. And that was a big message for the Republican candidate up there. It affected crime, uh, the crime rate and, you know, being expedited with kids not being in school and being on the streets. Um, It had a whole host of secondary implications that really transformed our politics and continue to to this day. Um, You know, as far as right now, it it does feel like events are, are, are moving well ahead of where the White House and where a lot of Democratic campaigns are. There was a really good story, I thought, in the New York Times today about how Democrats, governors, uh, legislators are really scrambling to catch up with public opinion. That, that's turning away from the, the, the public health uh, leadership and really wants uh, to get back to normal, especially after this Omicron wave quickly burns through the country. And, um, the, you know, you, you can look at the election results. You can look at the polling that's moving in, in that direction. Um, but but you can even you know look in Virginia. Um, it's not just Governor Youngkin. It's a, a Democratic state senator right. from Fairfax County 
who put out a statement uh, yesterday saying, you know, he's going to support legislation ending mask mandates in, 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 in Virginia at some point if the schools don't move and with their own timetables and, and start to show some guidance to frustrated parents on that front. Do you so think, because I, I, my theory, and I, I made this point in the first hour, my theory of the case is I don't think there are a bunch of Senate Democrats in Virginia who want to take that vote, especially if they're going to lose it. I don't think they want to take that vote. I think they might start to pressure some of these school districts to stop being recalcitrant, to stop holding out, to maybe drop these lawsuits and these fights with Yunkin and just maybe do it. Because I feel like if they're going to lose that vote, they don't want to cast a vote in favor of indefinite masking, the way things are moving. That's just my read on it from where I sit. Yeah, the middle ground, the political sweet spot right now is setting a timetable benchmarks for when you're going to phase out the masking policies in schools. That, that is where you can unite Republicans and Democrats. And the problem, as you've, you've noted, Guy, is that the, count, the, the blue county school systems don't want to do that. They don't even want to take the first step to, to meeting folks halfway. So Youngkin kind of forced the issue with his executive order upon taking office, and now we're starting to have these conversations. Yeah, and I uh, think was, he's, he's dragging yeah. them. He's dragging them in his direction, which I think is, is very good news. You mentioned some of the dissatisfaction in the country. I want to ask you about dissatisfaction among Senate Democrats in the United States Senate. I'm sure you saw that Politico report in Playbook this morning where – there were multiple sources, senators, aides, and others, grousing to reporters saying, you know, what the hell is Chuck Schumer doing in his leadership position, the strategy that he has embarked upon? You and I have talked about it. At times, we've both been sort of mystified by the decisions that Schumer has made in concert with the White House. And now it sounds like it's not just Manchin and Cinema who aren't going along, and apparently, based on this report, Manchin is still furious about the way he's been treated. There are other Democrats who are starting to come out and say, yeah, this is not going well, and they seem to be pointing the finger of blame at the majority leader. This shouldn't have been surprising, taking a vote on something that was sort of disconnected with the issues that voters care about and losing that vote and putting vulnerable Democratic senators on the record for something that could be used against them in an upcoming campaign. It, 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 it reeks of malpractice. And I think what you heard in, that, in those stories, it was a Post story and also a Politico story that, that touched on these same issues. Uh, the running theme is that Senator Schumer seems to care or worry more about his own reelection, his own threat of a primary from an Ocasio-Cortez type in, in New York than he is about managing the interests of his own caucus. It's, it's a Pretty, pretty shocking, frankly, to hear that. You, that, that never, you rarely, you know, Harry Reid had a tough, you know, re-election in 2010, man. And he generally, like, almost welcomed his unpopularity uh, because he was tending to the business of his caucus. And he, he let, let, let the internal politics back home play themselves well, out. And by the way, if that's, if that's the opposite of what Schumer is doing and he's making these decisions based on his own desire to avoid attacks from the left flank in a primary I mean, that might be a very selfish move by him. It might be a stupid way to be a majority leader. But ultimately, you can't just point the finger at him. These people, except for Manchin and Cinema, they all went along with it. My full exchange with Josh Krasauer of National Journal and a Fox News Radio political analyst available on the podcast, which, of course, is free of charge on demand every day once the show is over, which is pretty soon. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, producer Christine is furious with a pop music legend. She's going to pop off. Look out. Buckle your seatbelts. 
That's coming up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Mm, I love this song. If you're listening on the broadcast, Hello by Adele. Probably my favorite of her songs. If I've had a few glasses of wine or perhaps a long drink or two, I attempt to harmonize during the chorus in the shower. But Adele is apparently needing to say I'm sorry to a lot of people, including fans right now. There's a controversy. She put out a tearful video announcing that her Vegas residency, where she was going to do these sort of condensed concerts for a very pretty penny for her fans, and some of the major artists do this, right? Britney Spears famously did this. Celine Dion had one. This is the Adele residency in Vegas. I guess she decided that they weren't prepared for opening night. And so with very little time to spare, almost no advanced knowledge at all, Adele posted this video on social media and canceled the first concert. They weren't ready. I guess there were some maybe some COVID issues with the crew. It wasn't where she wanted the production to be, and so she's very, very sorry not happening. And some of the people who had paid astronomical sums not only to get into the building, but to be there for the very first one, they were given almost no warning at all, right? She did it within 24 hours of the concert. People had flown in. People had been planning for months. So there is a bit of a debate raging now about how angry people ought to be at Adele. Some of her hardcore fans are defending her completely and saying she is trying to maintain her integrity as an artist, And if it's not up to snuff, if she feels like it's not going to be sufficient based on what people are paying for, she has the right to pull the plug. They're going to reimburse people or reschedule them or whatever. Other folks are saying at the very least, if you feel like it's not going to come together in time, you've got to give people a lot more notice so they don't go and spend a bunch of other money on travel, flights, hotels, all of that to then have the rug yanked out from underneath them. Then there is another school of thought saying, who cares if it's not fully ready? Go out and sing anyway. And you can even tell the crowd, hey, we're not quite perfect yet. We're putting finishing touches. You guys are part of this process with me. I think some fans might almost love that, that they're almost guinea pigs, that they're there for almost a secret dress rehearsal process, if she had spun it the right way, I think that this would have been far less of an issue. If she was able to literally stand up and sing, that's what people are there for, her and her voice more than anything else. It's not like Britney, where you want a huge production of choreography and dancing and pyrotechnics and snakes or whatever. Adele is about the woman and her voice. You could have her and a grand piano and an accompanist, and that's it. So, here at the team, the Guy Benson Show, there are four camps, right? There's the, I don't care about this at all camp. I'm mostly in that camp, I have to admit. Then there's the, Adele is right, and she can do no wrong camp. 
I would say that might be Quiet Wyatt's position. Then there's the at least give people more advance notice stance, which is more or less where Dan is. And then there's Cookie, who believes that Adele should have decided the show must go on, even if it's not totally fully baked. Get out there and do it. Christine, you are particularly angry about this for some reason. You did not like take out a second mortgage on your soon-to-be-sold house and buy tickets to this. You were not one of the victims of this cancellation, were you? No, I was not, but I do feel bad for those people. I would probably call them victims, and this would make me not ever want to travel somewhere, you know, like and book a vacation around a concert. So I feel bad for other performers that are are missing out on me and their audience because I'm not going to Wait, do how this. have you I made think- this about how have you made this about you? So you're saying that because Adele did this under these yeah. circumstances, you will not travel in the future to go see concerts? That is nuts. Why is that nuts? That this could happen to me. Why would I plan a trip to Vegas all around going to see Adele, get to Vegas, and there's no Adele? Yeah, you know, you were mentioning you were mentioning this that you're now against traveling for concerts. You're never going to do it again, and you mentioned that on the show prep call earlier today. And so I have given away the Phil Collins tickets in London that I had for you and Bobby because you're not going to do it. So I was able to get a very oh, nice wait. price for them on on. Uh, Hold on. What? Well, well, okay. So uh, there was one exception. You didn't let me finish. There's one exception. Well, you didn't, and that you didn't mention me. the exception. So they were just, I put them up on like eBay and they're gone. But what's your exception hypothetically for the future? Phil Collins. Phil oh, Collins well, is the exception. Sorry. I mean, too late. I didn't know the exception here. So you're like actually seeming to be angry at Adele. Do you feel almost like you think less of her now? Is yeah, she now 100%. like not she's just a diva in a good way, but a diva in a bad way? 100%. She's done this before. She did this in London. Um, there are so many TikToks going around how people have said this is like the third or the second time that this has happened. Um, I predict before you let Quiet Wyatt get all unquiet and defend Adele, I predict there's so much more to this story than just, quote unquote, you know, the whole thing not being ready. Uh, mark my words, there's more coming out. Now, of you think there's, there's a backstory here. But you think if there's not a backstory, she should have just sucked it up and showed up. And even if it was just her acapella, she can sing for the people. Yes, one of my favorite performances of Adele was Carpool Karaoke, where she sat in a car with James Gordon and just sang. So she has, we know she has the talent. She could have just got out there and even sang, you know, maybe not a full concert, something for these people that think that she is like the queen of everything. But instead, she puts out this video on Twitter saying, I'm not quite ready. I'm just not ready. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I'm now, I have to say, I'm coming around to your position in that she could have come out to the people and said, we are not quite ready. It's not going to be the show that you deserve and you've paid for. But you've come all this way. You've spent all this money. So what we're going to do is I'm going to sing for you. And we're going to give you free tickets down the road when we are ready. Both. 
I think that would be the right thing to do. Yes, but what she did do was tell like a hundred influencers to show up at the little shop set up at Caesars where you could buy all the Adele uh, you know, merchandise and swag shirts and merchandise. And then she did a little FaceTime. Said, I'm so sorry. So I, I'm just sorry. It just wasn't ready. And the accent's getting worse. So let's move on to Wyatt. Wyatt, do you care to defend this? Yes, I will go to war to defend Adele. <laughs> I will be in the trenches on this. And how dare Christine, how dare you mock Adele? I think she is one of the best artists of our time. And that's what, she is. She is an artist. So she puts together a show that needs to be to the top of her game. And if it's not there, then she doesn't want to perform that way. And I, I back Adele 100%. All right. Some actual fighting words from Wyatt, who's ready to like paint his face and go to war for Adele. Dan, this seems to me to be actually fairly straightforward. You don't force a bunch of people to spend a bunch of money to come see you, then not show up and just do a quick I'm sorry with a few tears. She could have done an impromptu performance for them saying, we aren't ready. Here are my greatest hits. It's a special thing just for you guys. And we will bring you back on our dime in the future. Then I think she gets a bunch of great press as opposed to the bad press that she's getting. Maybe that's not logistically super convenient for her but it's also not super logistically convenient for a bunch of people busting their ass at work to save up money to go see adele because they're super fans only to have the trap door open up the day of or the day right before when they're already in vegas primed for this after two years of misery and lockdowns and all this stuff it, it really doesn't look great for her and i i like her yeah, so from what I know from these huge shows, from people that know have worked on them and things like that, when you have a plan out there already, it's really hard to just kind of like simplify it if something does go wrong. So it depends on how much time she had to know beforehand. You could put, you know, like a piano on stage and the band on stage and just do that and just do bare bones of a thing. Bare bones. And but, she had to have known at least a day or two before this. It's right. not going to happen. And you could set that up. That's fine. But I am kind of like Wyatt, like she can do no wrong. So I think, you know, like, just tell them, you know, you can't do it that day. And um, mm -mm. I still love her. I still like her. I don't think this is a good episode for her. And therefore, while not taking it to Christine's extreme, because that's never a good idea on any front, I am leaning a little bit more in her direction. I don't think that this is a good move. For Adele, and I can understand the people who are ticked off, and I think her getting dragged on social media is probably pretty well-deserved. Okay, we will leave it there, because I don't want the Adele fans to come after me. Although they're not as ravenous as the Taylor Swift people, apparently. The Swifties, like, you say anything, and they're, like, finding out where you live and leaving, you know, dog poop on your doorstep. Like, they are fanatical. I would guess the Adele people are more of like, probably a little bit older too, and just having, I'll have a glass of wine and get over it. That's my advice to you, Christine. Have a glass of wine and get over it because dry January is almost over. 
I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. Hope to see you there. Back here in New York for the radio show tomorrow. Same time, same place. In the meantime, have a great night. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.